This is Condopedia. Here, we talk about everything related to condo law in Ontario, with hopefully some humor mixed in. Welcome to our Halloween edition of Condo Crunch. We hope that everybody's excited for our stories here today. As you listen to our stories, you might start to wonder, are there strange forces at play in the condo world? Or is it just the weird and wacky characters that give us these crazy or strange stories? What is strange, what is scary, what is crazy is in the eye of the beholder or the ear of the listener. You can take your pick. But what we're going to do today is we're going to go through some of our scariest condo cases and some takeaways that we can earn from our scary condo cases. Reminder, this is a condo crunch, so we try and deliver as much information as we possibly can in a 30 to 45 minute period. So we don't take any questions here today. And I know I typically give previews of our cases and what we're going to be discussing here today, but I want to keep everybody in suspense, make it a bit more thrilling. So you're just going to have to sit back and listen as our stories unfold. And we're gonna start this morning with Harry Potter. Harry, also known as Mitch. I'm turning the microphone over to you. Thank you very much, Nancy. Uh, happy to lead this one off. Welcome everyone. Thanks for thanks for taking time to, to spend your lunch break with us today. So the first case I'm going to talk about today, I would say that this isn't our, our typical condo case in the sense that it involves discussions of criminality, drugs, police snooping and spying, and a violation of Section 8 privacy rights under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Now, you may be wondering how this all relates back to the condo world. Well, the setting for this case was the accused condominium building, and the court ended up ruling in this one that police officers do not have unrestricted access to enter common areas of a residential buildings, which includes condos, in order to gather evidence against an individual. It confirmed that residents in condo buildings have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the common areas of their buildings. So in this matter, which is titled R.V. White, I can uh, share share the, the cases with, with everyone, um, if, if you please. The police had suspected that the accused, Mr. White, was dealing drugs from his Ottawa condominium. For any fans of the TV show Breaking Bad, I couldn't help but think of sort of the parallels between Mr. White and Walter White from that show, but uh, I digress. Anyways, in order to gather information about Mr. White, a police detective entered the condo building on three separate occasions. All of these entries were done without the knowledge or prior consent of any of the condo's residents, which included the condo's board of directors. And all of these entries were made without a search warrant as well. The first entry occurred when the detective followed a postal worker into the building. So he just sort of snuck in the door as, as the postal worker was delivering parcels. The detective eventually made his way to the basement where he located the residence storage lockers and found a unit that he suspected to be Mr. White's. In this locker, he saw a blower fan, hoses, and suitcases, and the detective stated these were typical things that would be associated with marijuana grow operations. I also note that this case occurred in 2011, so it was well before the legalization of marijuana in Canada. The second entry, uh, the detective stated that he entered the building through a side door that had not been properly closed. During this entry, he hid in the condo stairwell in order to continue his surveillance of Mr. White. The third and final entry without a warrant, the detective once again gained entry through the side door that hadn't been closed properly. He stated that the, he saw the accused enter his unit through a window on the fire door outside the third floor where he was hiding. The detective stated that he heard screeching sounds, 
similar to the sounds made by packing tape being pulled off a roll. The detective also stated that because of the poor insulation in the condo building, he could hear voices through the fire door in Mr. White's unit. Though he could not hear the exact conversation, the detective stated that he felt like a drug deal was being discussed. The detective took the information he gathered during the secret entries of the condo building and subsequently obtained a search warrant for Mr. White's unit. The warrant was executed and the police found drugs and cash inside the unit. Mr. White was subsequently charged with possession of marijuana and cocaine for the purpose of trafficking, possession of cocaine, and possession of property obtained by crime. Despite the charges laid against Mr. White, the trial judge ruled that the gathering of evidence that formed the grounds of the search warrant violated Mr. White's Section 8 rights under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Section 8 of the Charter, for those of you who don't know, states that everyone has the right to be secure against unreasonable search or, or seizure. And according to the Supreme Court of Canada, the purpose of Section 8 is to protect a reasonable expectation of privacy. As a result of this, the evidence against Mr. White was excluded pursuant to Section 24.2 of the Charter. Now, Section 42 obliges law enforcement to respect the Charter and precludes improperly obtained evidence, as was the case here, from being admitted and relied upon. Now, you might be thinking, how could Mr. White essentially get off in this matter based on his Charter rights? And um, the answer there, I think we need to take a bit of a step back and consider the ramifications that unfettered access to everywhere Canadian citizens live, including in their condominium buildings, might have. Based on the detective's testimony in this case, they assumed that they had unrestricted access to the accused condominium. They were of the opinion that there was no reasonable expectation of privacy in the common areas of the condo building and that they could investigate as they please. If this were the case, privacy would be a mere casual right that would carry little weight. This case actually ended up being appealed to the Ontario Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal fully agreed with the trial judge. The Court of Appeal stated, If the police are entitled to climb through windows to gain entry to multi-unit residential buildings, and once inside, enter common areas such as storage rooms, hide in stairwells, and conduct surveillance operations for as long as they want on those who live there, all without a warrant, on the basis that those who live in these buildings have no reasonable expectation of privacy in the common areas, then the concept of a reasonable expectation of privacy means little. Though it can be assumed that, you know, the police had every intention in this case to stop drugs from being sold on our streets, this goal cannot be achieved by infringing upon constitutionally protected rights of Canadians. The Court of Appeal in this matter encapsulated this notion perfectly in one sentence when they stated, some limits on police activity are necessary if privacy is to be protected. Therefore, the Court of Appeal in this case made it clear that in some cases, our charter rights can only be protected at the expense of limiting police powers, a limit that is not only necessary, but essential. In fact, the trial judge in this case found that the police had neither statutory authority to conduct the searches, nor a constitutionally unrestricted right to trespass upon private property to conduct the searches, that private property being Mr. White's condo building and his unit. The Court of Appeal upheld this finding, showing strong support for the protection of Mr. White's Section 8 charter rights. With that being said, I think that's everything for me today. I hope that you found my discussion interesting. As I noted, this certainly isn't our typical condo case, but I hope my tales of police snooping, drugs, and privacy rights were entertaining and informative. Thank you, everyone. Very informative, Mitch. So I'm thinking anytime a condo receives a request from the police to be on the premises, whether for good reason or for snooping, we definitely need to be talking to somebody about their rights. Wonderful. Thank you, Mitch. and. 
Thank you, Harry. All right, Janet Wayne, I think we're going to turn it over to you now and take us on your wacky adventures. Over to you. Thank you, Nancy. Howdy, everyone. Um, so I'm going to be talking about scary uh, scenario. Well, it's probably not so much scary as it is concerning, but we'll say scary scenarios involving tenants. The first case that I'm going to discuss um, is with respect to some very difficult tenants that we've had to deal with this past year. So in a nutshell, the scary facts include the condition of the unit. It was deplorable. Uh, they did not have a working toilet within the unit. There was animal and human fecal matter uh, on the walls. There had been holes punched into the walls. There was something like 40 bags of garbage within this two-bedroom unit among liquids, foods, and other debris scattered on the flooring and uh, doors and walls. There had been flammable items stored and piled on the stove. The fan grill had a buildup of oil, which was which of course presents a fire hazard. And then on top of all that, they had three cats and did not appear to clean out the litter boxes. And so of course, uh, this led to there being a strong odor of cat urine and garbage transferring to the common elements and the adjacent units. And on top of this, one of the tenants uh, was physically threatening and anyone that was involved in this file, which includes the manager, employees of the condominium corporation and um, any residents who had, who had submitted complaints. The one tenant didn't seem capable of stringing a sentence together without an expletive. It was really something to see. Um, and then on top of all that, there was uh, complaints about unreasonable noise with respect to swearing, screaming, yelling, banging um, around every night, um, which of course um, kept other residents up. And so the condominium corporation had received complaints about odor and noise coming from the unit. And as many of you know, when receiving these complaints, the condominium is required to take reasonable steps to deal with these complaints about tenants or for you know, any other individual uh, on the condominium property for that matter. Condominium corporations uh, cannot ignore such complaints, and but are required to reasonably investigate and then follow through with enforcement steps as and when appropriate. And so in this case, the manager did an excellent job of taking reasonable steps. She had gathered the requisite detail from the complainant residents. She had completed several inspections of the unit and then had prepared a detailed report with several photographs confirming all of her observations. She had communicated with both the landlord and the tenant, which included sending various violation notices among email correspondence. This point is really important. Um, if you have a dispute involving a non-compliant tenant, don't just communicate with the landlord owner, also communicate with a tenant as well, like in an effort to resolve the dispute. This is something that the CAT and the court like to see. They like to see the condominium corporation communicating with both the tenant and the landlord owner. The manager had also given both the tenants and the landlord a reasonable opportunity to bring their behavior and the condition of the unit into compliance with the provisions of the Condominium Act and the condominium's governing documents. After legal counsel, us got involved, and after taking further enforcement steps, uh, the tenants refused to provide access to the unit in order to allow the condominium to clean it up, and the ongoing dangerous conditions uh, and activities caused by the tenants had continued. And so we were ultimately required to bring a court application pursuant to Section 134 of the Condominium Act to obtain a compliance order um, requiring the tenants and the landlord owners to comply with the provisions of the Condominium Act 
and the condominiums governing documents and to also seek an eviction if necessary. When we got to court, um, we were in a very good position to obtain that compliance order as we had the necessary evidence to support the tenants and owners breaches. You know, by the condominium corporation taking all of these reasonable steps to enforce the tenants compliance, it was also at the same time obtaining evidence to support the tenants breaches. And so Again, by the time we got to court, we had good evidence to not only support the tenants' noncompliance, but also the fact that the condominium corporation had taken reasonable steps to deal with the tenants and the owners prior to going to court. This is an also this is also an important point because the cat and, and the court courts like to see condominium corporations taking all reasonable steps before resorting to starting a legal proceeding. And so as a result, the court ultimately granted our compliance order. And then luckily, shortly after that, the tenants ended up vacating the unit. And so obtaining an eviction order wasn't necessary. Now, this importance of acting reasonably also extends to the assessment of cost awards should your dispute proceed to the cattle court. Both the cattle and the court have continued to confirm that this principle of acting reasonably is a major consideration in the assessment of a cost award. Um, therefore, it's always a good idea to take reasonable steps to resolve the, the dispute before proceeding to the cattle court. Not only does this ensure that you're in the best possible position respecting the assessment of a cost award at the end of a legal proceeding, but there is also a possibility that you resolve the matter by taking such steps and avoid having to start a legal proceeding and incurring the related costs altogether. And again, by taking reasonable steps, you're also gathering evidence to support a legal proceeding should that be required down the road. The second case that I'm going to discuss is Frontenac Condominium Corporation Number 6 v. Macaulay. In this case, the tenant continuously failed to comply with the provisions of the Condominium Act and the condominium's governing documents by uh, physically threatening, verbally abusing, and acting aggressively towards other residents, robbing another resident on the common elements, banging on the walls, uh, windows, and slamming the doors of her unit, banging on the resident's uh, front and back patio doors, yelling, screaming, and ranting and raving within her unit and on the common elements um, at all hours of the day and night, which had resulted in repeated police visits to the condominium property. And so as a result of this behavior, the landlord owner had started various landlord and tenant board applications pursuant to the Residential Tenancies Act seeking to evict this noncompliant tenant. Because none of the landlord's LTB applications produced any meaningful outcome, and because the tenant's behavior remained problematic for other residents, the Condominium Corporation had started a court application pursuant to Section 134 of the Condominium Act against the tenant and the landlord owner seeking, seeking a compliance order and, if necessary, an eviction of that tenant. So this raised the issue of concurrent proceedings before the uh, Superior Court of Justice and the Landlord and Tenant Board with respect to the eviction of a tenant. At the hearing of the condominium's court application, the tenant argued that the, app, that the condominium's court application should be stayed or put on hold because the landlord had ongoing LTB applications in which it was also seeking to evict the tenant. In response to this argument, the court determined that the condominium's application should not be stayed and confirmed that the condominium corporation was not a party to the proceedings before the LTB and did not have much, if any, control over how the LTB applications proceeded or their outcome. The court further stated the following. 
While it is always a matter of concern to have what are effective parallel proceedings before different tribunals seeking essentially the same relief, the two sets of proceedings are brought by different parties with different interests and different responsibilities. In the case of the applicant, that being the condominium, it has, as been pointed out, clear and unequivocal obligations under the Condominium Act to ensure compliance with not only the Act, but the condominium's declaration, bylaws, and the rules of the condominium. Under those circumstances, I see no justification in further delaying the ability of the applicant to obtain relief because of the ongoing proceedings in front of the landlord and tenant board. So the court's determination was due in part to the finding that the condominium corporation has its own obligations and rights under the Condominium Act, which are distinct and separate from the landlord's obligations and rights under the Residential Tenancies Act. And so in our view, the condominium corporation is not legally obligated to await the landlord's enforcement efforts at the LTB. But there, there are circumstances where it might not make sense to wait for these efforts. And so unless there are, there are exceptional circumstances, and even though the condominium corporation is not legally obligated to await a landlord's enforcement efforts, we do think it makes generally good sense to wait, allowing the landlord owner to first seek an eviction through the LTB can sometimes entirely resolve the matter without the condominium corporation having to incur significant legal costs to pursue its court or CAT application. Beyond that, it puts the condominium corporation in a good position in terms of costs. Um, if the landlord is willing and able to take effective enforcement steps against a non-compliant tenant, the landlord might be able to avoid a claim for cost by the condominium corporation if the condominium corporation decides not to wait the, wait the land, await the outcome of the landlord's efforts. So with all that said, I should add that if the condominium corporation does decide to await the landlord's efforts, in our view, the landlord owner should be keeping the condominium corporation apprised of all its efforts and communicate with the uh, condominium corporation as may be necessary. All right, Nancy, that's all. That's it for me. Back over to you. Fantastic, Janet, aka Victoria. Sounds like the wild, wild west is going on in those units. Well, we're going to go from the wild, wild west over to the maybe common serene winter solstice, Jim, or maybe not. Maybe not. We're going to wait and see what Jim has to tell us today. Over to you, Jim. Thanks very much, Nance. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm going to run through a couple of crazy cases from years ago. I think these older cases are still instructive today. I hope you find them interesting. The first case was in Kingston in the late 1980s. So we're going back a little ways here. We were acting for a group of owners who wanted to remove the board and to arrange for election of a new board. It's a fun historical case, I think, because it's a case about proxies, particularly faxed proxies. Some of you may remember faxing. Some of you may even still be faxing today. It was one of the early ways to send a document electronically over a phone line. Of course, these days we have email and we have text and we have other ways to exchange documents electronically. But in those days, faxing was the method and was pretty new. Also, we didn't know for sure that a faxed proxy, a faxed signature in particular, would be accepted by a court. That was a big concern in this case. So let me turn to the case. 
in the condominium, two owners owned about 48% of the units. Those two owners controlled the board. As I said, the other owners wanted to remove and replace the board and had hired us to help. Obviously, we needed pretty much every vote from every other unit to get the majority that we needed to remove and replace the board. Anyway, we easily arranged for the necessary 15% support to requisition the required meeting for removal of the board. The board then asserted falsely that many of the owners were in arrears more than 30 days and therefore couldn't vote at the upcoming requisitioned meeting. To avoid any dispute on that point, I went to the requisitioned meeting with a wad of cash, about $4,000 in my hand, supplied by the owners. In strict legal terms, a check is not payment until the check clears. A check is only a direction to someone, usually a bank, to make payment to the person who is to receive payment under the check. So again, depending upon the condominium's bylaws, a check might not constitute payment. We didn't want to run the risk of the board refusing to accept any of the votes. So I paid each of the alleged arrears with cash in return for a receipt. Again, this ensured that every vote would count. In advance of the meeting, we were also concerned that the board would take the position that faxed proxies are void, faxed signatures are void. Remember, this issue wasn't yet clearly resolved in law at that time. So as a result, we took two steps. Number one, we made sure that there was an original signature on every proxy, including any proxy forms that had been faxed to the owner. We had a number of owners who lived in Toronto and we faxed them the proxy forms to sign. But we arranged for the signed proxies to be delivered to us by courier so we had original signatures on all of our proxies. In advance of the meeting, I reviewed, I sat and reviewed each and every proxy to verify for myself that every proxy had an original unfaxed signature. They were all the, the ink, the pen signatures. Number two, before the meeting, we also made a photocopy of all of the proxies that we'd received just to have our own copy even though they weren't originals, but we had a copy of the originals that were filed with the meeting. We knew that the proxies would be out of our control after they were filed with the meeting. So we wanted a copy of the proxies that we filed with the meeting, just in case that might be helpful. And it turned out to be extremely helpful to us. The vote was sufficient. About 52% of all units were in favor. So in other words, all of the other owners, other than the two, were in favor to remove the board. Then, the day after the meeting, as expected, the outgoing board took the position that the vote was insufficient because, so they said, several of the proxies were faxed and therefore could not be counted. And I, I again stress, they didn't raise this at the meeting itself because the signatures were all original. I had verified this when I re reviewed each and every proxy that we filed. So we ended up in court and the outgoing board, of course, produced the alleged faxed proxies. I then produced our photocopy 
Until that time, I hadn't told them or the court that we had the photocopies, but now I needed to reveal the photocopies to respond to the allegations that some of our proxies had faxed signatures. By using our photocopies of the original proxies, we were able to show that there were marks on the board's copies that were new. Those marks did not show up on our photocopies. We were able to show that the board had run some of the proxies through the copying function on a fax machine, thereby creating faxed copies, including faxed signatures. So in summary, they had taken steps to pretend that some of the signatures were faxed signatures. The court ruled in our favor. I remember Justice Lally in chambers saying to the opposing lawyer, you go ahead and compare the copies. You be the judge. The opposing lawyer said, your honor, I want to assure you that I had nothing to do with this. In any event, Justice Lally simply avoided any issue about the validity of the faxed signatures. He held that faxed proxies are perfectly legal anyway. So the board was removed, and we still act for that condominium corporation today, which of course has been administered since that time by new boards of directors. The second case involved a police arrest at a high-rise Ottawa condominium not that long ago in about 2010. I was attending a board meeting. The boardroom was on the ground floor on a corridor beside a couple of residential units. During the meeting, we heard loud yelling in the corridor, followed by a huge bang and then more yelling and the sound of someone being dragged down the corridor towards the main door. There was a tremendous amount of banging and yelling as this group of people traveled down the hallway towards the building's main entrance. Then there was a knock on the boardroom door. When the door was opened, there stood a policewoman. She asked us who we were and explained that the police had just made an arrest in the adjacent residential unit. The policewoman said, you'll need to arrange for someone to fix the unit door. We can't leave until the unit is secure. We checked the door. It had been more or less completely demolished by a battering ram used by the police. The board arranged for the superintendent to deal with the broken door. I think this case raises the following interesting question. What if the police had come to the board before smashing down the door? What if they had said, we want to arrest someone in unit XYZ. Can you use your key for the unit to let us enter? I think that the answer might well have been no. The reason is that the condominium corporation can only enter a unit or facilitate entry to fulfill the objects or duties of the condominium corporation. Arresting someone in a unit would not typically fall within the corporation's objects or duties. I think there might be some circumstances, some instances, when it could be appropriate to cooperate with the police and even facilitate entry by the police. For instance, when the police have a warrant to enter, or if the condominium corporation has been working with the police to deal with a resident whose actions are both considered criminal as well as violations of the corporation's governing documents. 
Incidentally, in relation to the case that uh, uh, Mitch summarized earlier, Harry Potter summarized earlier, the Condominium Corporation could cooperate in terms of allowing access onto the common elements for surveillance by the police, but in my view, only if that would fit within the corporation's objects and duties and subject to a consideration of any required notice sometimes to the owners. So very interesting issues there. Anyway, I think the cases where a condominium corporation can cooperate with the police generally will be rare. So the bottom line is that I think the police likely did the right thing in this case by not asking the condominium corporation to help. The other question is, would it be possible to charge back the door repair cost to the owner of the unit? In my view, the answer is yes in many cases, but I think a chargeback might not be possible unless you can prove that the resident's misbehavior has caused the door to be broken down. So if the resident were not found guilty, and if we couldn't otherwise prove that the resident has misbehaved, a chargeback for the door might not be proper in such circumstances. But again, in many cases, I think that a chargeback would be appropriate because we should be able to show that the common element damage was likely due to misbehavior of a resident of the unit. So there you go, Nats. Those are my comments. Back to you. Thank you so much, Jim. And there are so many wild and wacky cases. Jim, remember the first meeting I ever went to with you? A chair was thrown across the room. We've seen bullhorns brought to meetings. We've had meetings in police stations. So there's no shortage of crazy and scary condo stories. Those are just a few for today. We tried to pick ones that had really great messages that we could share. But perhaps stay tuned for some more wild and wacky cases at next year's Halloween update. So for now, we're going to bring ourselves to a close. I, uh, I'm thanking our winter solstice, Janet Wayne and Harry Potter for sharing those stories with us today. A quick reminder that this will be put onto a podcast coming up soon. So watch for that podcast. And our next Condo Crunch will be on November 28th. We haven't yet set our topic. So if you have any interesting or cool ideas, feel free to pass them our way. Thank you, everybody. All Hows Eve is coming up. Be safe. No snooping around, but have fun trick-or-treating. Take care. Be well. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Conopedia is brought to you by Davidson Hu Allen, a boutique condominium law firm servicing Eastern Ontario. You can find more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or on our website at davidsonconolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com.